0: Last time, on Lesser Known Lewis. In part one of Blue Spells and and spheres, Lewis defends the value of metaphors and meaning. He talks about some of the philosophical
1: and religious and literary implications of using metaphor. Can we
0: speak without metaphor? Is all language metaphor? And because they're, they're necessary ways of understanding reality. and and communicating reality as well. In part one, Lewis talked about two types of metaphors, the master's metaphor and the pupil's metaphor. It's just that the master's metaphor is one where you already understand the concept and you can understand the concept separate from the metaphor. The pupil's metaphor is one where your understanding is limited to the metaphor because... You only understand the concept through understanding that metaphor. Coming up, in part two of Blue Spells and Floun Fla- Blue, Sp- Blue Spells and Flown Spheres, we get into the practical implications of Lewis's defensive metaphor and discuss Lewis's famous quote that reason is the natural organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning.
1: Welcome to Lesser Known Lewis, where two friends and C.S. Lewis fans explore his lesser known works. I'm Sean.
0: And I'm Jordan. Join us for Season 3 on Metaphor and Myth, where Lewis's writings on language, imagination, and storytelling will help us come to see, know, and taste reality more deeply. I think what I walk away from this whole essay with is a humility about language. And I think that's what his hope is, particularly, like you said earlier, uh, that people who think that we can get a, we can get rid of these metaphors, especially the dead ones, get rid of the dead metaphors and get to the idea, to the concept behind it, and just talk about that literally. I think he's, he's telling those people, you can't really. Because once you get behind the initial metaphor and, and the dead one, you're still going to try, you still have to explain this concept and you're going to end up using somewhat metaphorical language. It might be less metaphorical. Mm-hmm. It might be closer to a, a master metaphor, but it's, it's through metaphors that we get to the understanding right, and get to the concept. And that's the important part is that we do get to the concept. He talks about the danger of not understanding a metaphor is a metaphor. That's a, that can be a problem because we do have to get to the concept behind the metaphor. And, and I guess maybe that's the thing is, is realizing that some metaphors that you, some concepts you have, you only understand them through the metaphors you have to understand them. Yeah. And so there's a humility there that should come with that. He he writes this, he says, we must be content with a very modest quantity of thinking as the core of all our thinking or as the core of all our talking. And that's because to some degree, we have to use metaphors and sometimes dead metaphors that are somewhat meaningless to us. They just, it seems like they're necessary ways of communicating and understanding. And so, but then he goes from there to say that maybe we should maybe we should all be a little more cautious with our words and think about them more. Yeah. Which is something that, uh, another divisive person here, uh, Jordan Peterson says is his rule number 10 in his 12 rules for life is be precise in your speech. And Lewis here says, basically if you want to be precise in your speech, then the first thing you have to do is you have to become aware of all the dead metaphors in your speech. But then the second thing you have to do is not just get rid of metaphor. The second thing you have to do is create new ones. You then have to be, maybe that's what it is. He says, we all have these pupil metaphors that we understand things by. But if you really want to get, grow in your understanding of a thing, you might have to get rid of the pupil metaphor by creating a master's metaphor for that thing. Maybe I'm taking his thing too far here, but um, I don't know. I thought that was one of the takeaways for me.
1: No, I really, I, I don't think we're going too far there. It is this, like I said, it, this essay really felt like it, it, um, well, first of all, it was quite different than a lot of other things that we've read of Lewis's so far, but also it opens up all these other ideas and questions. This is one that I wish that we could talk to Lewis about more than maybe anything else we've read so far hmm. is, is to be able to ask him some questions. but. I wonder even if at that point, though, where you're talking about like kind of graduating to master metaphor, I don't know that it's always, I don't want us to paint a picture that Lewis is saying that pupil metaphors are bad or inadequate and that master metaphors are better. However, he does talk about the the fossilization, in his words, of metaphors and where metaphors become a little less helpful and, and where they can maybe lose their meaning. And I want to dive into that in a minute, which also will explain why this essay has the title that it does. So I'm going to ask you to explain that in a second, Jordan. But okay. But I thought it was interesting and and just kind of providential, serendipitous, whatever you want to say, that we opened this episode up by you talking about a competition, an Easter egg competition, basically, that we're going to make, be making mm-hmm. some allusions to other things. yeah. An illusion, allusion, not illusion, an allusion to something (laughs) um, is... They're illusions, Michael. uh, (laughs) That's exactly what I... Yeah. Sorry. An allusion, not an illusion. An allusion is like a metaphor in that it points somewhere else so that the informed listener can derive extra meaning. Ooh, that's good. So... If, again, like the people who understand your two wise trees analogy or or Easter egg or reference, whatever we want to say there, imagine a world in which this episode becomes very famous. It becomes the foundation of many discussions. But in the future, it's completely lost what the two trees even means. And it actually comes to the point where that term even, two trees, two wise trees talking, starts to just refer to people who love C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. And there's no context for it, even maybe coming from Lesser and Lewis contact, uh, uh, podcast. There's no context mm-hmm. for the illusion that you made um, mm-hmm. to the original content of it. And, it. and there's actually distance that grows over time. And that, he said, can lead to a fossilization where the original meaning, the meaning behind the metaphor is lost because people don't understand that it's even a metaphor anymore and they start to create a noun out of it or they start to think mm. that the the metaphor is the content really though the metaphor is meant to expose the content and lewis yeah. obviously he doesn't use the two trees analogy um uh, but uh, but what does he talk about why are we why are we talking about blue spells or blue spools and the land for spheres or whatever <laughs> whatever the <laughs> title actually yeah. is
0: yeah, because of what you're just saying, he uses two examples of of different ways that metaphors could develop and then and then grow and then lose their meaning and content for people and just become dead words that we don't really know what they mean. So the one would be he says, Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, talks about how we see things through blue spectacles, and then that that shades how we see them. At least I think that's what he was saying that it's not really explained super well in here, but you take that idea about blue spectacles and you keep referring to, you summarize all of Kant's philosophy as, you know, blue spectacles. And then we keep understand, we keep talking about it and it becomes, you know, shorthand and we start talking about blue spells instead of blue spectacles. And then over time we have this word blue spells and we're we kind of know what we're talking about, but it's so separated now from the whole conversation because now we've started referring to blue spools in other philosophies and blue spools in, you know, that guy over there is clearly, uh, you know, he, see thing, he sees things through blue spools. And we're not even, we might not even know about Immanuel Kant anymore. We've just heard this phrase used, which is truthfully the phrase rose colored glasses. It's the same idea. Yes. Yeah. I don't know where that comes from. I have no idea why we use that, but I get what it's referring to. But I also get the idea behind rose-colored glasses without the metaphor. Like I get the idea that you just see things a certain way. I don't need the metaphor rose-colored glasses to understand that. So my understanding of that concept and the metaphor are separate and so the metaphor rose colored glasses is dead to me i have no idea where it comes from but well maybe it's not dead because i understand like if you put on rose colored glasses now everything you see is rose colored but in some degree it my 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 understanding separate from it i don't need the metaphor to understand it did you find out where it comes from
1: rose colored glasses
0: yeah i absolutely did well
1: please that's a perfect example jordan i feel like because we yeah, that that metaphor is, I would say in, in normal society, universally understood. Um again, speaking for from a Western Canadian perspective at least. Um it comes from the 1840s, apparently. It was a figure of speech. It had the same meaning then as it does now. First time that it was ever written down was in a novel called Tom Brown at Oxford. Obviously, I read that this week. No, I'm just kidding. And uh, in preparation. Um but It goes back to the days of hand-drawn maps and the cartographers who created them. What? Yeah, very interesting. So back in the day, before we had those handy little cloths that come in our zenny package when we order new cheap online glasses, um, but, Uh you know, a silk cloth or a glasses cleaner, um, they would actually, the story goes, use rose petals to polish their glasses before settling in for their detailed work on their maps. So presumably... After um, polishing them a whole bunch, you would actually leave a pink residue on the lens. And that would actually tint the mapmaker's vision every time he or she used those glasses. So they were looking, the idea is that they were looking at idealized version of the world, i.e. a map, you know, the map is not the terrain, through rose-colored glasses. And that's how it takes on this idiomatic um, meaning of you're looking at the world through an idealized Kind of way. So, do we know? I wow. I did not know that at all. No, no. But the meaning of optimism and maybe even misplaced optimism, like distorted, a distorted perspective that is overly optimistic, that Mm -hmm.
0: survived in the metaphor only. That's really helpful. I'm glad you looked that up. I would have had no idea it referred to the map makers. But that adds so much more to the metaphor because it it's about looking at the world specifically. Yeah. So interesting,
1: but obviously to to exhaustively go through our language and only use metaphors where we know or words for that matter, because blue spells or blue spells, um, blue spell is not, um, it's not even a metaphor in in Lewis's example. It has actually just moved on to become a word, that a noun almost. It stands for this philosophy, um, mm. even though it was a metaphor originally, and and of course our language. This is where I say, like, there's, there's an argument from this essay to, to be made that all language is metaphor. Yeah. So that even our nouns, our verbs, that they can come from these these metaphors, ultimately. And I don't know how aware you are, but even in our conversation, like, you use the term broaden your horizons. And all of these, mm-hmm. like, our, mm-hmm. our speech is peppered with it all the Peppers. time. And Lewis is clearly saying, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Lewis is clearly
0: saying it, it doesn't make any sense to to strip this all out. So you mentioned that all language is metaphorical and that is a part of this argument or, or that, I don't think he says all language, but, but pretty much all language is what he's getting at. And so he writes this towards the conclusion that those who have prided themselves on being literal and who have endeavored to speak plainly with no mystical tomfoolery about the highest abstractions will be found to be among the least significant of writers. Yes. And then says, the great creators of metaphor are among the masters of meaning. And specifically about poets, he says that poetry takes the highest place uh, in writing because he writes this, those who have at once the tenderest care for old words and the surest instinct for the creation of new metaphors is how he describes poets, um, which is just a beautiful line to describe poets, but he, he kind of lists a bunch of different types of writers that we would think of as those, you know, really more directly getting at the truth. So political writers, well, okay, maybe people wouldn't say they're getting at the truth just, or journalists. (laughs) Um, but maybe back in his day, the ideal of political writers, journalists, psychologists, economists, historians, geographers, even biologists, or philosophers, depending on the philosopher, because they're trying to be more literal in their writing. Like that's their aim when they write is to be literal. If you write a psychology paper and you just have all these flowery metaphors, flowery metaphors, see, um, you you probably won't get a very high mark. You might actually get your paper returned to you and you have to rewrite it because you're, you're supposed to be getting at the truth with no... Um, you know just the truth and only the truth, so help us God. But Lewis says that all those types of writers uh they're trying to really use metaphor sparingly, but in reality they're probably just not even they're they're blind to the reality of how metaphorical all of their language still is, and he values children's authors and some of the more ancient philosophers and poets more. Because they are often, he says that their writing is more significant because they're well aware of how metaphorical language is. And they're purposefully trying to be metaphor, metaphorical and employ metaphor. Uh, he even says, and this I don't understand because I don't understand math. He even says that mathematicians, their, their communication is more significant because they get that math is all about uh, maybe symbols is a better way to put it. Yeah. Um, but again, that's about the limit of my understanding of math. So almost... Well, and you,
1: just like, I mean, we can just from grade nine, we can say, you know, you start to learn algebra mm-hmm. and a equals what? And, and so that there's, yeah, there's this in, there's this, um, understanding that this stands for this, this isn't mm. this.
0: Yeah. Right. Right.
1: Jordan, the only thing that that makes me wonder about, I didn't actually see when this essay was published, but it made me wonder if he was a children's author yet and if he was just uh, tooting his own horn, to use a great metaphor, or whether he (laughs) was inspired because he held um, fairy stories in such high regard at that time.
0: I could be wrong on this, but I think this was in the 30s he wrote this, so it would have been before Narnia. Okay, so this is before the birth of Narnia you'll be able to see listener in the description. I'll put the date of the authorship in there if I was correct about it being the thirties, but yeah. Yeah. Maybe he was, um, maybe that's why he became a children's author. He just that's went it. for it. Cause it's, yeah. Which is interesting because his, the reason he never got a professorship at Oxford was because people didn't take his writing seriously. It was too, um, fictional to, not academic enough and especially once he started writing children's fiction they were like this guy is supposed to be an academic author or lecturer of medieval literature like what's he doing writing kids books and this essay would you know kind of defend himself on that point yeah interesting Here's one thing he says that I don't really understand, but I remember, uh, I remember Charlie Starr talking about it in his episode with us. So if, if this, uh, caught your understanding there, you can find out more about it in this essay and then please write into Sean and I and tell us what it says, what it means. But he says, meaning is the antecedent condition, both of truth and falsehood, whose antithesis is not error but nonsense. And he goes on, this is the, I guess that part of the quote, um, I'm not a hundred percent sure on how I, I wouldn't be able to explain what that sentence means, but he goes on in this paragraph to then say something, which is um, one of the more famous things he has said on this matter of imagination he says, for me, reason is the natural organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: that really struck out to me too. What did you think was significant about that? What did you think it mean? Meaned. meaned. <laughs> what did you think that meant? I'm laughing with you, not at you. Um, <laughs> you can laugh at me, it's fine.
1: So when I take those two quotes together, you know, he says that the, the antithesis of meaning is not error, it's nonsense. Um, you can have, you can make a meaningful statement that is in error. And so meaning for you to be understood and for you to be saying something more um, than than nonsense, there has to be meaning in it. But just because your statement is meaningful doesn't mean that it's true. And so then how... Now Lewis, again, we I, I alluded to the conversation we could have about postmodernism and modernism and now metamodernism, um, based on Lewis's thoughts in this essay. But he's pretty well he kind of straddles the time when the world starts to awaken to postmodernism that that comes into the popular that becomes the worldview that people are born into for the for the most part in the West. And um, but he's, he's really a modernist, you know, he's, he's very systematic in his thinking. We've talked about how amazingly uh, he can build an argument, um, from, um, how amazingly he can build an argument. And I
0: would say that he's, then he's, let me just interrupt. Sorry. He might be a pre-modernist. Uh, yeah, I, he almost it's is probably a discussion for a different day. Anyway. Yeah. So
1: Lewis, he, he comes out as a rationalist here. He says that if I want to apprehend truth, I am going to use my faculty of of rationality, of intellect. And that's clearly demonstrated in his writings. um, In this essay itself, even. But he says in this essay, we're not talking about truth. We're talking about meaning. And so a metaphor can teach you something that is meaningful, but false. Yeah. And so it's still an accurate pupil or master metaphor it doesn't matter it's still an accurate metaphor and so imagination and that that, again ties in with our, our bigger theme for for right now and i would say maybe is the biggest caution to us as people living in the 21st century is that we are we're living in a cultural milieu which is looking for meaning over truth because we've come to a place where we distrust authorities so much, and when we're, we're so aware of a multiplicity of people's different ideas of what truth is, that we have jettisoned the idea of objective truth. Mm. So we find, I, I use we quite loosely, but we find things that are meaningful to be things worth believing. We find things that are meaningful to be the things worth doing. But we don't necessarily stop to ask the question of, is this true or not? Yeah. And so I would say, like, at the very last, this is so classic, Lewis, the very last two paragraphs, um, you know, the the end part of the, par- of the essay is where you read those two quotes from, was to me maybe the most exciting and forewarned me the most of saying, like, hey, I can be caught up in something, find so much meaning in it. But that doesn't mean it's not necessarily leading me to error. And vice and, and and the other side of that of of saying, like, man, I can be a hyper rationalistic person and um and have all the quote truth in the world, like it can be right, but if I lack imaginative faculties and if I can't make metaphor, if I can't understand metaphor, then my truth may actually become void of meaning. The truth and meaning are not Mm -hmm, the same mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. How did it resonate with you? What do you think about this?
0: Yeah, I think that's totally it, is that his point is to conclude, you need both. Yes. And so it's, it's almost like after this whole essay of him saying that metaphors are important. And of course, for metaphor, you need imagination. So imagination and metaphors, they're important and valuable. After all his argument for that, He still says, actually, I'm still a rationalist. Yeah. I I still think you need reason, but you can't have one without the other. And there's people in the world straying in both directions, trying to just go for meaning and not paying attention to whether there's objective truth or not. That's more probably the postmodern Version of things, but then there's also a modern version. I think most of us have both of these tendencies in us because we live in this bridge, this weird time where we were modern, and now we're postmodern, maybe we're into something else, but um, we're, we're very incoherent. I think as we, as I watch people think, sometimes we think modernly, sometimes we think postmodernly, but yeah. So the postmodern way is maybe meanings what is important. And who cares if it's true or not? There is no objective truth. And then the modernist, the strict modernist version would be, it's just about truth. Let's get there with literal language, cut out all the nonsense,
1: (laughs) but reduce everything to irrefutable factoids and build our, our thought from
0: there. Yeah. But to do that, all you end up with is, is math and equations. And it's meaningless. And that's, that's, that's why modernism ends up in nihilism is because it gets, it's just about a pursuit of truth, cutting off our ability, cutting off our organ of meaning. And maybe that's why a response to the enlightenment was romanticism. This, this flourishing, because the romantics were all about imagination. And about meaning and, but maybe Lewis would say, you can't, you can't do, don't just go in one direction or the other. Um, you can, you can have truth without meaning and that's a problem, but you can also have meaning without truth and that's a problem. And I've seen, um, and I can't remember if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but Lewis saw the human person in terms of concentric circles three concentric circles. And I think he borrowed this from Augustine, but the larger circle is imagination. And then within that is reason and intellect. And then within that is the will. So in order to get to the will, and us as moderns, we just, as Christians, we just say, if you just teach people what's true and false, then then their will will be able to behave appropriately. Mm. But that's not true. You have to, like, remember when Charlie was saying in his episode, well, actually Jerry touched on this as well. You need the imagination to fill out the purpose and meaning of true and false. We might know something is right and something is wrong, but until we have that imagination element behind it, that's really, um, coloring in the meaning of it. Our will won't be able to as strongly do what's right and, and not do what's wrong.
1: So in a rightly ordered inner person, we must have metaphor because it really does. It, it is in the realm of imagination, but not exclusively the realm of imagination. It spills into um, the realm of our rationality, our intellect, and then can yeah. be used by our volition. Yes.
0: Interesting. I think so.
1: Yeah, we think so. So Jordan, I don't know <laughs> if you've got anything else about this essay, but but I would say, um, you know, listener, read if you don't already, um read the things it's okay to walk away from this with a lot of questions. Um mm-hmm. you know it's inspired a lot of thoughts in me, but I I don't know how how right they all are i feel like i need to go to talk to somebody like jordan honestly in this conversation i feel like i understand this essay so much better just processing it out loud with you and hearing your thoughts for sure um but part of the reason we wanted to do this podcast even was just because it was going to stretch us and this one really felt like it stretched me so um you were not experts uh it would be interesting to we were laughing about how in this season, we mostly are interviewing experts, except for this one where we most needed an expert, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, but my last thought, and then I'll just pass it off to you, Jordan, to conclude, is that I want to say, I feel like, why should you know about this essay if you love C.S. Lewis? Um, I think that this actually highlights a defining character of C.S. Lewis's writing style, of his speaking style, of his thinking style. What I love most about Lewis is that he is the metaphor master who creates master metaphors. He takes these concepts out of um, things that are so difficult to understand and he works them into a way that I can easily relate to. And I find this happening again and again in his essays. And I think that is the substance of his fiction even too. And that's why it's actually more than allegory. It's not just allegory. He is using symbolic language and many allusions, and there is allegory in it. But it really, in the end, is about the appropriate metaphor to 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 show a truth that is objective and and exists outside of just his imagination, his own creation. So I would say, at the end of the day, reader, that's why I would I would recommend this essay, or at least recommend understanding Lewis's thoughts on metaphor, because um, for the average reader, and maybe even the above average reader, this is going to be a tough slog.
0: Yep, I would agree. My final thought that I have left unsaid here is why this one's important is that if we as Christians believe that all of creation has meaning and everything created is created with meaning, then we're not going to be able to understand creation or understand meaning without. Imaginations <laughs> and without metaphor and poetic language. And we're not going to be able to talk about the meaning of creation without those things. So it just really raises and, and defends the value of imagination and metaphor, I think. <laughs> but maybe we've misunderstood the whole essay. If, listener, if you are listening and you think we've misunderstood things, this one is, we are very aware that we could have. Or if any of this leaves you with more questions, please do write in because we will be able to uh, address and follow up with these later in the season when we get your messages and have more experts on the show. We can maybe throw some of your questions about this to them. Uh, We've got a a few more um, guests coming on, scholars. Charlie will be coming back. Uh, Dr. Andrew Lazo will be joining us soon. So all very exciting stuff coming your way over the next month you will be able to hear on our feed our episodes that we did over at the lamp post listener with daniel and phil talking about our podcast and about the last battle and our next episode of our show will be with a very special guest a grandson of the inkling owen barfield whose name also happens to be owen barfield Now, I hope that once again, you can see that these lesser known and sometimes obscure and challenging works of Lewis are worth knowing better because each one gives us something that we can use to grow as humans. But for me and Sean, what is most important is that we keep finding how these lead us to Jesus, or at least give us the tools to strengthen our discipleship to Jesus. This one was more challenging for that reason, but I think we got there. Ultimately, it's not about making Lewis more well-known, but because he is a master of metaphor, he is so capable of getting us to see the meaning in the world that God created. Using metaphors, Lewis helps us get a better glimpse of reality of God himself, and that's what it's all about for us, making the lesser known works of Lewis more well-known, because he's always working to make Christ better known. If you think Lewis does this well and that we are helping in that effort and would like to help me and Sean in our mission, head over to Patreon, and for $10 a month, you can join our top tier of support with David and Terry. Thanks again to you both, and thanks to you for listening. May you find ways to be a co-creator with God this week by becoming a master of metaphor.